0: Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins, talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth.
1: And I'm Ian Dunt, and I'm a columnist with the I newspaper, and I'm the author of
0: How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. This week, it's another two-parter, and it wasn't even close, because it's such a big topic. In the year of Israel's 75th anniversary, we are talking about Zionism. Now, Ian, one book I read, I think it's in that Oxford series of introductions to, Uh and I'd never read an intro like it because the intro is basically like, don't be mad at me. And it's this sort of disclaimer (laughs) that he's like, it's impossible to, he actually says it's impossible to be objective. Well, what you can do is aim for scholarly detachment. Now, I was looking around for podcasts, which I also use for research sometimes. and I literally, the first one was like very, very Mm pro-Zionism. And the second one was extremely Mm anti-Zionism. And I struggled to find one which was just trying to sort of tell the story without clearly taking sides on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And yet this is what we are going to try and do. It's also the case that you can
1: have opinions on it. While remaining objective, so some of the people I've spoken to for this podcast are Zionists. They're typically sort of liberal Zionists, you know, being attacked from sort of outside of Zionism by left wingers and being attacked certainly on the right of Zionism as sort of assimilationists and traitors and blah blah blah. But they will sit there and go like, okay, have a very objective appraisal of how things played out, and their conviction on Zionism does not ex- sort of prevent them from being able to look at things with a certain level of disinterestedness. You know, it's always possible to to have a view, and someone could be listening to this and think, well, I'm very. Pro-Palestine or I'm not, or whatever. And you can have that opinion and it can be legitimate. And at the same time, you can distance yourself enough sort of emotionally in order to intellectually engage with what's being talked about here.
0: And the reason that we we are doing Zionism, you know, we are not doing we're not doing the conflict. You know, we're talking about right, the right. evolution of an idea, is I felt like a lot of the time I would see the word come up and I, it wasn't I wasn't sure what it meant, but I wasn't sure what the person using it thought that it meant, <laughs> you know. And this comes up with recent sort of controversy around uh, Roger Waters, for example, mm-hmm. and saying absolutely not anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist. Yes, yes. But what does that mean? What kind of because you know anti-Zionism, as we'll talk about. Was like meant something completely different in the early days of Zionism. That was actually basically the mainstream Jewish position was was anti Zionism. Now it means something else. So it is sort of maybe the, the, it speaks to the core of the origin story project. So it's a little lofty. But um, no, that's so true. But really just trying to go, well, what do people mean by this word when it is, if you look back over the history, contested relentlessly? from multiple angles.
1: Most interestingly, from within itself. Yeah. So you look at the usage of the word. I mean, a, a lot of the time, the most putrid sense is it's really just someone who's used it as a substitute for Jew because they know that they can't get away with saying, I hate Jewish people. right? Mm. So they say, like, I hate Zionism, yeah, yeah. right? And you get away with it. And that's just, the, you don't need to dabble too much with that because we know what that is. And it's not really worth enough respect to dwell on. Other times people use it as a sort of proxy for. Right-wing Israeli governments, yes, essentially Likud, yeah. Look, good, look really. good, yeah, yeah, yeah. And other times, people do mean it genuinely from this sort of sort of old socialist tradition and old liberal position, which is you know you shouldn't have states that are based sort of defined by either ethnicity or religion, you know, and that goes against fundamental sort of values. And that that's the much more interesting critique that you can have, and it's also one, by the way, that's broiling within Zionism all the way through its history. Yeah, and just the thing is that once you start delving into the word and once you start delving into the history and you. Start to disentangle this stuff the heat reduces as the light increases the heat reduces because it's just harder to have this angry tribal venomous kind of conversation when you're like wow jesus christ like the complexity of what's going on here and the nuance and the various elements of it so i think when taking that all together it's a sort of key element of what we've been trying to do on this podcast. Yeah,
0: because there are sometimes, I think there are some topics, like, for example, climate denial, where judgment, it's explanation, but it's also judgment. <laughs> there, was really, there was really no doubt, you know, how, how, how we felt. Whereas here, the aim really is is, is explanation, It's to tell the story and talk about the, you know, the disputes and the evolution of the ideas in a way that will um, hopefully be helpful. Well, the OED. <laughs> yep. And here uh, we are. We're back. <laughs> Safe space of the OED. <laughs> so Zionism, originally a movement among Jewish people for the re-establishment of a Jewish nation in Palestine. Later, a movement for the development and protection of the state of Israel. Also advocacy of or support for this. Interesting. 1896, Jewish Chronicle. I would ask them to consider whether Zionism really deserves to be preached down as a standing danger to Israel's progress. I'm not quite sure what the context was, but 1896. This Is mm. the first citation Zionist, however, originally uh, an advocate or supporter of a movement among Jewish people for the reestablishment of a Jewish nation in Palestine. Later, an advocate or supporter of the development and protection of the state of Israel. So it's basically the same. That first appears in the Los Angeles Times in 1891. Um, huh. talking about a meeting of Zionists, and it's that was a that was a curious one because the German word Zionismus was invented by Jewish nationalist Nathan Birnbaum in 1890, distinct from this kind of talk of returning to, to Zion, this my, talk of like my. homecoming, which has been part of Jewish tradition for centuries. I mean, you could say since like the Babylonian exile, is right, this idea right. of like coming back. But he actually talks about Zionism, but it doesn't become like a coherent idea and a political project until the Hungarian writer Theodor Herzl and his 1896 book, Der Judenstaat. hmm so there's these precursors. People talk about like um like proto-Zionism, particularly the movements in Russia. There are Israeli made statements to that effect, mm-hmm. as George mm-hmm. Eliot's Daniel Deronda, But they're not the the political project that starts with Herzl. And he actually didn't know about a lot of the precursors. That's what seems mm. so odd. And he, he was drawing this on them.
1: Sort of fantastic ignorance to him <laughs> because you know lots of people were like at the time when he was when he first sort of publishes this pamphlet, lots of people were like, well who's he talking to? You know, in the movement
0: it's not, he's not talking to anyone. He doesn't know anything. He almost he's discovers just like... them afterwards and <laughs> yeah, goes, Oh, yeah, yeah. you guys have been thinking about this, <laughs> Like and he's because he's a very unusual guy. Mm, he's a fascinating figure. He's born into a kind of wealthyish bourgeois family in Budapest, 1860, and becomes a very successful Urbane assimilated Jew, mm-hmm. not very religious, not immersed in Jewish culture. There's this amazing story where someone, a Jewish friend came around and he had like a Christmas tree up and he was like, what's this? And he just goes, I could call it a Hanukkah tree. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was definitely not coming from a, a religious place. His biographer, Stephen Bella. Calls him a man between West and East, between liberalism and nationalism, with an admiration of the values of aristocracy as well as technocracy. At the center of Viennese intellectual society, yet an outsider and a Jew whose Jewishness was first an embarrassment before it became his life's purpose. Mm, interesting. There is a journey. Mm. He studies law in Vienna, then gives that up for journalism, moves to Paris as the correspondent for the Neufrei Press in 1891. While he's there, he covers the Dreyfus Affair. The eruption of anti-Semitism in the very country, which had been the first to give Jews full equal rights a century earlier. You know, you have to remember that, that Jews in Europe only had equal rights for like a century max. He later claims, because it makes almost a better story, that the affair made him a Zionist, that he was so shocked that he had this revelation. But that's retrospective. And it's clear that he was he was on this path already. And it was a path to nationalism, not in, I think, the way that we use it now. But in that 19th century sort of anti-imperial, you want to get out from the empire. So like Czech nationalism, for example, wanting to be free of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was, you know, was like pretty benign. You know, generally sort of pretty liberals. It wasn't nationalism with perhaps like the stigma that we um, we associate with.
1: There's also, I mean, there has to be the things you always read about the Dreyfus affair is like the spasm. Mm. You know, that the, the, the anti-Semitism is like it spasms out, you know, starting in Paris and spreading to the towns. And whenever it, there's these key days where the rioting takes place, it's, it's almost spreads like a virus. Like people are on the streets and then they go and they get the people in the cafes and then people in the cafes go join them in these anti-Semitic riots. And the students suddenly see it and they come join them. They jump off the buses. And I think if you were to witness that, that kind of th- the way it spreads that way, you would start to come to conclusions about right. this feeling being latent and constantly present underneath the sort of civilized exterior of society. But he was
0: seeing it in Vienna as well. Yeah, You know, okay. he was part of this German nationalist society at university. And he left, we realized that, you know, they were massive anti-Semites. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, but I also would like, you know, also supporting like the German nation. And it was this feeling of, of constantly banging up against anti-Semitism and then mm-hmm. the goal of assimila- assimilation. And, you know, it's like we want to be part of these, this nation. And we're constantly being told that we're other and that we don't really belong. And he says, we naturally move to those places where we are not persecuted. And there our presence produces persecution. And this is the the sort of the seed of of the Zionist idea for him is like, we can never be safe. We can never be welcome. So he says at one point, we have sincerely tried everywhere
1: to merge with the national communities in which we live, seeking only to preserve the faith of our fathers. It is not permitted to us. In our native lands where we have lived for centuries, we are still decried as aliens, often by men whose ancestors had not yet come at a time when Jewish sighs had long been heard in the country. And it's just that sense of like, It's not ever going to stop. You know, you can have positive moments, you can have negative moments, maybe there's more, but there's just, it's not ever going to stop. It's not ever going to fully stop because there is just this thing in people that leads them
0: to attack and reject the Jews. Now, really importantly, he sees Jews not as a religion, not as a race, but primarily as a nation, but a nation without a homeland. In 1895, he goes to a banker and philanthropist called Baron de Hirsch to support his plan to escape what he called the invisible ghetto that he felt that the Jews in Europe lived in. He wanted a state of Jews where no one has to be ashamed that he is a Jew. Mm. Hirsch isn't persuaded, but the notes that Herzl makes for this meeting, for this pitch meeting, essentially, um, <laughs> and the notes <laughs> he makes afterwards turn into this book, De Judenstadt. And Bella says, without De Judenstadt, there might never have been a state of Israel. Now, it's often translated as the Jewish state, but it's not quite that, is it? There's also, by the way, there's a word play. It's also the state of the Jews. Right, yeah,
1: and there's sort of a, a, a kind of subgenre of Zionist academic literature on on what exactly this word means. The take from it is it it signifies more like home than it does specifically and technically the word state as we would understand it right now. So notice in that OED definition that you gave that it was before it's about Jewish nation. Afterwards, it's about protecting the state of Israel, right? But the nation. It's a very nebulous, broad word that can encapsulate lots of different things and does throughout the history of Zionism. To say Zionism is about believing in a state for the Jews is, for most of the history, certainly until the creation of the state of Israel, is not the case. And actually, a state is a comparatively minor part of what people talk about.
0: We should just say in the context, not just the Dreyfus affairs, but where um, a lot of the energy of sort of Zionism and proto-Zionism is coming from Russia because of the pogroms, a word which entered the English language from Russia during the 1880s.
1: So the status of Jews in Europe is predominantly improving into the second half of the 19th century, right? I mean, not least, like you say, you've got Disraeli as prime minister in, in the UK. Disraeli is baptised Christian, but nevertheless, he's seen as a Jew. And you see the same sort of thing going on in Holland and Italy. You have cabinet level sort of Jews. You have full civil equality in Germany and Austro-Hungary in Italy and Scandinavia. But the majority of Jewish people live in Eastern Europe, by far. You know, Lithuania, Russia, Poland, Romania, Mm. ten times more Jews in Russia than there are in Germany. Now they are not allowed to move to leave the part of Western Russia that they're in. Terrible economic situation, almost point of starvation, barred from entering the professions, pushed into joining the army where they're basically used as cannon fodder. And then you get these regular pogroms. So 1881 onwards, another one in 1883, another one in 1884. And then really critically, about 20 years later, in 1903, where you get these very sustained riots. Again, 1905, 810 Jews killed. 1903
0: is the Kishinev. Program, exactly a really important
1: one yeah yeah 45 jews killed and you talk to people in this none of it's a drop in the ocean compared to what happens obviously during the holocaust but at the time the psychological effect is very very and, and caused
0: a wave of um it caused a wave of refugees and it's funny how these tie up because we didn't talk about Churchill yes. later yes but we talked about how churchill um one of the reasons he quit the conservatives was over the aliens act which was designed to shut out a lot of the Jewish refugees who were coming from Russia as a result of that.
1: Problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's not to put too fun, you know, what happens in Western Europe is also quite severe. You know, we've talked about the Dreyfus Fair. There's a financial crisis in the 1870s in Germany, which results in a sort of wave of anti-Semitism with the widespread slogan, the Jews are our misfortune. So even for the more fortunate sort of Western European Jews, there's just this sense of, oh, it all just feels terribly tenuous.
0: Well that's I suppose, I think perhaps that Herzl's position, you know, that he was he was very successful and he did move in yeah. circles made him made him think, Well, if even I feel like this, not somebody from the sort of Shtetl in, in, in Russia who, you know, has no economic power, no yes. social power at all. But he's going, like, even I, for all my efforts, cannot, you know, could get over this, you know persistence of of anti-Semitism Hello it's that bit of
1: the program where we come on to tell you just how beautiful wonderful and generally elegant you are by virtue of your Patreon membership so thank you in particular this week to Helen Fisher Dan Stinton Graham Shaw Jonathan Eiling and Julian Hiles you guys are the
0: actual objective best Now I can talk a little bit more about the the state that he describes. It's very, very idealistic. You sent me
1: a WhatsApp while you were reading it, saying it's basically Wakanda. It's Wakanda for
0: Jews, basically. Well, I <laughs> mean, which I know sounds a little <laughs>
1: little trite, but but no, no, I thought it was very funny and very but, on point. But in that. the
0: Chinese, he, so initially, he's like built on tolerance and justice, no state religion, no great role for the military, is and we are going to build a new world essentially to benefit Mm. all mankind. And he writes in his book, No Fairy Tale, No Delusion. And why he's doing that is to distinguish this dream of a homeland from like utopian novels, like the big one in Germany was Theodor Herzl's Freiland. This all stems from kind of Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward and just this absolute wave of of utopias. But then he published his own utopia novel in 1902. Mm. So skipping ahead slightly, we'll come back, called Alt Neuland, Old New Land. And what he describes as like a high-tech aristocratic republic with hydroelectric power, electric cars. Mm. Wow. <laughs> very modern and liberal. He writes, in a former century it was impossible. Now it is possible because we have machines. And in fact, when he first visited Jerusalem in 1898, he thought it was such a kind of shambles. Yeah, he changed his mind. He talked about replacing most of it with a comfortable, well-ventilated new city. <laughs> and then they got realized that people wouldn't actually appreciate that. And, and so essentially what he wanted to do, and it was really utopian, I think, even though was, there was a pragmatic side to him as well, is he wanted to free Jews from, from everything that was holding them back, from the burden of the past, from the sort of superstitions of religion, which obviously many, many Jews did not appreciate that. Mm, mm. But also from capitalism, from socialism. He just says, look, in Europe, we're associated, we're, we're either considered like, you know, bankers or revolutionaries. We, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're just sort of, you know, we're, we're hated by yeah. both sides because we're associated. And he just, and he wanted to sort of find this sort of liberal mutualism that was somewhere between, like a third way. Yes, yes. Between capitalism, and socialism. The The idealism of it, is astonishing and you can see why it was stirring but it wouldn't have mattered had he not also been this kind of like a doer mm. like a, an organizer so he launches in 1897 a paper die Welt, and the first Linus congress in basel switzerland it was like 200 delegates 24 countries and there's this famous statement of his he goes at Basel I founded the Jewish state if I said this out loud today I would be answered by universal laughter if not in five years certainly in 50 everyone will know it and of course exactly 50 years later there is the UN resolution for the state of Israel he's out by nine months that's crazy <laughs>
1: It is. yeah. It's an extraordinary, it, it, that is an extraordinary fact.
0: And one really important side note here is that as soon as Zionism declares itself at this Congress, it inspires the most notorious anti-Semitic document of all time, which we talked about in Conspiracy Theory episode, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a hoax, uh, which claimed to be the record of secret discussions in Basel. So as soon as it exists as an idea, it inspires this phenomenally successful anti-Semitic document, which is like as soon as they get together and there's a plan, there are kind of paranoid claims about what the real
1: plan is. And we should also say that lots of Jews at the time and lots of Jewish organizations at the time sort of spot the danger where they're like, look, we're just trying to make it work in whichever country we're in you know you're coming along you know all we keep on being told about is a jewish world conspiracy you know right. <laughs> to take over and that we're completely separate from the country that we're in we're a separate nation because we're jewish and we can't you know assimilate we can't be part of it and what you've come along with now is an actual public sort of conspiracy to create a separate nation of jews <laughs> so this is going to make things very difficult for us and and the main one of the main thrusts of internal jewish cr- sort of criticism of zionism is precisely that that it plays into the the narrative that had historically been used against the Jews.
0: You can understand that argument, particularly from the, the he was trying to, you know, obviously get money and influence. So he's going for the most successful Jewish people. And they're kind of, you know, a lot of them, they haven't given up on assimilation and they haven't said, oh, well, you know, anti-Semitism is insuperable. Mm. And they were like, all, all this is going to do is sort of underline the logic of, of antisemitism, and in fact, some of the people that Herzl is seeking for their backing were antisemitic, and he's sort of thinking, "Well, we want a homeland, but these and and some like Wilhelm, they want us out, <laughs> <say they> want <laughs> us out." You know, so therefore, say, "Oh, well, Herzl is just repeating uh, antisemitic logic," is unfair, but you you can understand why some, you know, why there was actually quite a lot of opposition,
1: and certainly the whole idea goes against. Those basic ideas in both socialism and liberalism, which is the sort of slow eradication of these categories, you know, of sort of like ethnicity mattering, of race mattering, of religion mattering, and us just sort of going to the sort of universal stage of humanity based on either the individual or based on class consciousness on the other side. So it just doesn't fit, you know. Later, once the 20th century turns into this monstrous thing for minorities, you know, it become it makes much more sense. But at that period, the dominant ideologies are more towards very, very Different end point for humanity than the kind of everyone in their own place kind of mentality, which seemed to follow from. And what And it was, he was far saying.
0: worse than, than 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 Herzl, you know. Imagined that you know, more than one writer says that you know, Herzl just he didn't he didn't see the Holocaust coming. He None would, of them did. No, he would never have imagined that it would that it would be that bad. So it's sort of he's a real he's like an idealist in many ways, and yet he's a, a kind of real realist about the durability of anti-Semitism, and that. That's where it comes from. He's not getting very far. At the time of his death so historian uh Melvin J. orofsky says that only about one percent of the world's Jews were Zionists. He dies in <laughs> he dies in nineteen oh four.
1: I mean, we should also say, I mean, the man is uh like a god level bullshitter. So he, he goes over, you know, he's talking to the Sultan in Constantinople and saying, like, look. Give you 30 million, we'll clear up all your debts, you know, in exchange, you'll give us this bit of land, you know, Jerusalem and so like, well, fine, I'll take the 30 million, but I'll only allow you scattered immigration, you've got to take Turkish citizenship. All of this is just complete bullshit. Like, I mean, he doesn't have any of the money. At no point does he really get sort of rich Jews to sign up financially for what he's doing. That They have, yeah. in fact, far from the sort of image of the sort of Zionist movement being awash oh. with money. I mean, they are—they basically have no cash at almost any stage of
0: the process. And, and the, so the people that he's sort of chasing after, I mean, Lord Lord Rothschild at first just totally rejects the idea of a Jewish state and says it would be a ghetto within a ghetto mm. with all the prejudices mm. of a ghetto, fully really against it. What he finds is that the masses, particularly with these the sorts of Russia we're talking about, they love it. And because he's an incredibly charismatic orator, He ends up attracting support from the section of society that he wasn't seeking and having the door shut in his face by the people he was going after. He he didn't really see it as a mass movement initially.
1: He goes for the elites. No one kind of understands or cares at all about what he's saying. He has the mass support. And then there is a moment of recognition from the elites. It's a very interesting one. It's, it's, It's almost this kind of lunatic comedy. So it's October 1902. He first sees Joseph Chamberlain. And Chamberlain's actually quite sort of sympathetic, really. And he's, he's on this. Tour, he has a meeting. Nothing really comes of it. And then he goes on this tour of Africa.
0: And Joseph Chamberlain, at that point, is colonial
1: secretary. He's on this tour of Africa, and he just sort of he's in Uganda, and he thinks, "quote There's a land for Doctor Herzl." It's it is this kind of comedic sort of thing where it's late Imperial Britain. You're wow. like, oh, so you want a land? Well. We've got Uganda, like that we've just found down the back of the sofa. It's you know, like small, we can give you that. It's a small. But is it? It's a small. It's part not all of Uganda. Uganda. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is the Uganda proposal. So it's like, look, right, not Palestine, but you know, we can send this sort of study commission to ascertain if there's sort of any suitable vacant lands, and then we could have maybe establish a Jewish colony. And this proposal, which is brought back to the Zionist Congress, which at this point is the sort of you know functional is essentially how the movement makes its decisions. I mean, there's an executive board as well, but mm. there's votes there. Really divides the Congress very passionately. I mean, to the point where there's an assassination attempt on Nadal, who's sort of second, the guy that comes on second after Herzl. Um, oh, Max, Max Nardau, exactly. famous yeah, yeah. for degeneration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah who? who would, he's not quite the number two, but he sort of is the number two. There's an assassination attempt on him. I mean, Nardau was called a traitor to his face. And I think this is very interesting because it highlights this really fundamental split in the motives of the Zionists at this point. On the one hand, you have the safety argument, which is the, the obvious one, right? We keep on getting killed, They keep on being pogroms. You know, There's these savage crowd attacks on us. We need somewhere where we know that we're safe. And that's usually the core argument. But actually when Nadel comes out for that second speeches that he usually makes at those Congresses, they're slightly different i mean he talks about that stuff obviously but he also spends an awful lot of time talking about this sort of false self that many jews take on by virtue of being in the diaspora Mm. right you're always seeing yourself reflected as the other in the eyes of what is it germany france the uk russia so you never know what your true identity is your true group identity and maybe your true individual identity and that's this very different not, it's not a practical argument, it's, it's, it's a, almost a psychological argument, and almost a sort of spiritual argument, and a sort of secular spirituality to it. These are very distinct strands, and what's interesting is once you propose Uganda, once the Brits propose Uganda, that split reveals something, because Uganda will do if your main thing is safety. Mm. If that's what it's all about, it doesn't really matter where you go. But if it's about identity, it's got to be Palestine. Right. It's got to be back to the to the old home now.
0: Oh, and this is this is really popular with the, the talking about the proto-Zionists, with, with the Russians, a lot of people became very important for support for Zionism. They really cared. It really reveals Herzl's sort of detachment from care. tradition that he didn't he wasn't wedded to that until he saw that supporters were. Well, he I mean, when when he first proposes the idea,
1: it's either Palestine or Argentina. He was like, oh, we could maybe judge Hazmdina. You know, the the remorseless focus on Palestine at this point hasn't dominated. But once there's a potentially viable proposal for another location, suddenly everything becomes quite fraught. And ironically, Eastern European Jews were actually less likely to support the Uganda proposal. And these were the guys suffering the pogroms, right? So they should be most. Thinking exclusively about safety. But again, if you think about it, you know, the towns that experienced the worst pogrom were actually the ones that were least willing to countenance going to Uganda as opposed to Palestine.
0: Because yeah, Argentina was an option. Madagascar later on was mentioned. There's a Michael Chabon novel, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, where he imagines that it was it was in Alaska, that the Jewish Homeland after the war was in Alaska. Right. So it's not integral. If you look at if you really look at Herzl's original ideas, it's like they were so idiosyncratic they were mm. so particular to him and as he gets supporters you know he he sometimes they kind of like they lead the way they're not so they don't want to they don't want to compromise and, and and just find a another sort of state they're not that fussed about electric cars <laughs> <laughs> you know they they have other priorities he um
1: he wins that vote on uganda but Sort of doesn't it tears everything apart. It's dumped at the next congress by which time he he has died um, at the age of just forty four. It's very really young to sort of put the sort of close the page on him. I really like this quote from uh, Walter Lecure, who wrote the history of Zionism, Sorry, a history of Zionism, which is sort of one of the seminal texts mm. on the subject. He said his inspiration was basically romantic. His ideas inconsistent and often muddle headed. He compares unfavorably with the more sophisticated political thinkers of his age. Yet on one issue the central one of his life, he was right. He sensed the anomaly of Jewish life in Europe and the dangers that would face the Jews during the years to come. And he was looking desperately for a solution before it was too late.
0: Stephen Beller, his his book is in the Jewish Thinkers series. And he says, actually, most uh, Jewish scholars do not really think of Herzl as a Jewish thinker, right. as, a, as a Jewish leader. Mm. But they say intellectually, you know, he, he almost sort of hadn't done... He hadn't done the work. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's, an, he's an absolutely um, fascinating character.
1: And as for himself, by the way. The whole time he was just like, why does everyone keep on talking about the politics of me? I just want to be known as a great playwright. <laughs> you know, and, and his plays apparently were just completely terrible. Like just really shoddy, average sort of stuff. And he was just like, I know I'm a great writer and no one's giving me the recognition I deserve for my writing. He
0: was like, if you build it, they will come. Mm. You know, the Congress. He Basically, there was no... Indication that it would be a success at all. But he just booked it. He just announced it, launched a newspaper to promote the Congress. And then all these people were like, oh, there's something going on. It's almost like erecting a stage. And then thinking like, well, the people will come and then I'll manage to book some bands if I just say that this thing is happening. We simply could not make Origin Story without our Patreon supporters. So thanks all. And in particular, this episode to James Patterson, Agnieszka Rokaita, Gabrielle Sino, Stuart Smith and Tom Dewar. Thank you so much. If you're not a supporter yet, you can find out more about supporting us by clicking the link in the show notes.
1: We sort of have to fast forward a little bit. There's, there's a period where sort of not too much happens. But the, the big, next big sort of leader of Zionism is Heim Weizmann. He's born in 1874 in Motol near the border of White Russia, Lithuania, and Poland. He's a very um, pragmatic, moderate sort of figure. Crucially for what he does, he's an Anglophile. So really, from the age of ten, I mean, at the, at the age of ten, he writes, "All have decided." The Jew must die, but England will nevertheless have mercy upon us. And that, I think, love for England and that, that kind of faith as savaged and brutalized as it is by the end of this process in England is, I think, really what sort of explains the the leadership decisions of Zionism the years forward. Isaiah Berlin Berlin has been playing on my mind throughout this so much because I associate very strongly with his philosophy. And then reading this, you understand how he might have arrived at this philosophy, especially of unavoidable tragedy in human affairs. He's been playing on my mind all the way through this thing. He said... What held the Jewish masses to him, this is obviously talking about uh, Weizmann, what held the Jewish masses to him was the fact that although outwardly he had become an eminent Western scientist, he was a very successful chemist, and mingled easily with the remote and unapproachable masters of the Western world, his fundamental personality and outlook remained unchanged. His language, his images, his turns of phrase were rooted in Jewish tradition and piety and learning.
0: Berlin also says, in the realm of action, the great man seems able, almost alone and single-handed, to transform one form of life into another, (laughs) which is uh, quite true. No one's ever said that about me. (laughs) Oh, you lie. You lie. I
1: have personal diaries. They're (laughs) full of that kind of content. It's a really thankless life he lives because throughout this stuff, he is just mercilessly attacked by all sides, you know, the Zionist Congress. And he's just constantly. The thing is, they don't have any money. And by the way, throughout this period, there is no sort of sign of mass migration from Europe to Palestine, where conditions are actually pretty tough. There are waves, but they never get the numbers that they need. And so he, he's really up against the wall. on We
0: should point out, though, that there's about 40,000 Jews that emigrate to Palestine, build a small community that's known as the, the Yeshuv on a patch of land that they actually bought from the Ottomans. Uh, 1909 they found the first kibbutz collective farm and then what becomes but very much is not in 1909 the city of uh, tel aviv mm-hmm. and at that point it's extremely left-wing <laughs> so so left-wing that the orthodox marxists thought that jews and Arabs would unite along class lines which is an amazing bit of marxist optimism yeah yeah there is a settlement there.
1: There, there, there are sort of multiple waves, right? So you have one at the sort of turn of the century, 1881 to 1903. And then you have a second, the more sort of socialistic wave, 1905 to 1914, which really is, you know, that kind of kibbutz idea of sort of communal life. And then, of course, you get away from the 1933 sort of onwards in, in fear of, of, of growing Nazism. But you're still dealing with pretty small numbers, right? And crucially, no money. And mm-hmm. no real political power, you know, what What leverage do they have to sort of ask things of people? So he meets, uh, Weitzman meets Lloyd George in 1915, about a year before Lloyd George becomes prime minister. George was very sympathetic, sort of says to a friend, when you and I are forgotten, this man will have a monument to him in Palestine. He's also socializing with Arthur Balfour, who's the first lord of the Admiralty and the foreign secretary. And Balfour as well, is very pro- It's a funny guy, Balfour, because he's usually known as being this really quite cynical, scheming man. But actually, none of the pragmatic arguments for Zionism had any impact mm-hmm. on him at all. He was just like, well, no, this is just the right thing to do. And by that, I think the important thing to remember with these guys is they are religious men. And they knew their Bible. And according to their Bible, this is a thing that that should have been taking place.
0: And Churchill, Weitzman met Churchill very early on in mm-hmm. 1905. And, and there's a quote from Churchill, which which really is your pragmatism, but also moral principle. And I don't think you can... Just throw away the fact that a lot of people, a lot of them, Churchill, Lloyd George, Balfour, thought that this was the right thing to do. Yes. So he goes, the establishment of a strong free Jewish state astride the bridge between Europe and Africa, flanking the land roads to the east, would not only be an immense advantage to the British Empire, big Churchill thumbs up, (laughs) but a notable step towards the harmonious disposition of the world among its peoples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This leads to some very canny negotiation from Weizmann
1: to what's called the Balfour Declaration which is probably apart from the it's probably the second crucial moment in Zionism after the first Zionist Congress mm. so this is the decisive cabinet meeting is on October the 31st 1917 and it reads as follows it's very very short his majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Now at that point Mark Sykes, Secretary of the War Department, brings the document out to Weitzman and says, um, Dr. Weitzman, it's a boy. (laughs) To which Weitzman says, well thank you very much but I don't like the boy and it's not the one I expected. What an interesting thing for him to say, right? And it seems on the face of it, kind of insane. Like, I mean, they've got the charter, you know, the whole time with Herzl, it's like none of, no more of this, just us just sort of infiltrating slowly and buying up land. And no, no, we need a charter. We need legal protection. Mm. Now they've got the charter, but it's very vague. It has no legal meaning. It's only political. It's essentially an aspiration. There's no mention of what the form is, a protectorate or a mandate. There's no structure. And even saying it's a Jewish home, I mean, it could be a Jewish home, but there could be other homes there too. And I think he gets through the negotiation the fundamental problem, which is that for Britain, this is a marginal concern, whereas for Zionism, <laughs> it's an absolutely central well, concern. Well,
0: part, part of this, it's not just the principle, is that Weizmann, because he was a chemist, had you know, invented a new method to produce acetone, which is used for munitions. Mm It was really important Mm -hmm. to war effort. So this sort of gives him this influence. He's personally very popular. More so, you know, it's more popular than the cause.
1: And then look at the second part, right, of... Of Jews in other countries. Mm. Because that partly that was like, you know, the, the Board of Deputy of British Jews in the UK was like, No, 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 we're not signing up to this stuff at all. They were hearing at the same time lots of criticism from the Jewish community in Britain of going like, What the sinus stuff is this kind of mad cap. It doesn't help us in any way. We're opposed to this. And actually, but the but the final draft. It's actually put together by Leo Amory, by the way, our old friend from that Churchill podcast oh, right. and famously of, you know, speak for England and for God's sake, man, go uh, towards Chamberlain. so he plays a sort of walk-on role in this bit of just nuancing the language down to this very oh. vague, very British statement that ends up defining the next few sort of decades
0: of, of Zionism. It's remarkable when you can actually see like a scan of, it's it's in a letter. Mm-hmm. It's one paragraph yes. in a letter. That's the declaration. <laughs> and immediately, I mean, it, it gets very complicated over the next couple of decades. But Britain is constantly sort of, it's granted a mandate over Palestine 1922. Almost as soon as the Balfour Declaration is written, they're kind of, they're sort of walking it back and they're yeah. saying, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that. Balfour himself writes to Lloyd George in 1919 the weak point in our position, of course, is that in the case of Palestine, we deliberately and rightly decline to accept the principle of self-determination. Mm, yes. And the US Commission, King Crane Commission says, the anti-Zionist feeling in Palestine and Syria is intense and not likely to be flouted. So they are aware that this idea, I mean, if you go back to Herzl, that his idea was that, because that, that, Palestine was not the most desirable Piece of land on the planet at that point and mm-hmm. he was sort of going we will go there and we will cultivate it and tend it and we will be so good at it and it will bring such prosperity and beauty to the region sort of the arabs will welcome us for somebody who was so attuned to the persistence of anti-semitism he somehow thought we're just going to be our new society is going to be so great <laughs> you know resistance will melt away and um obviously you know politicians were perhaps a little more aware that this was going to be a massive obstacle there's a real um is it naivety or is it
1: something worse in zionism about the attitude of arabs to the project (laughs) because for a long time it's sort of barely mentioned you know the fact that there are actually people there right and when it does come up it comes exactly as you've just said bounded up by this well it's, it's economic right we're gonna make everyone you know they'll be richer we'll get on perfectly well everything will be fine there are clashes early on, really. I mean, you know, part of the problem was in that first sort of first wave, you know, the Jewish lands that were purchased from people were often people who Arabs who were in debt. And so they had a lot of resentment of the fact that sort of these newcomers had just come and taken all the land. And as early as 1891, you've got Arab notables who've been on a visit to Jerusalem, sending petitions to Constantinople saying that the Jews were depriving Arabs of all the land. There are also plenty of instances of, you know, lots of sort of inter-community cooperation, economic as well as sort of cultural and friendship, etc. But ultimately there are clashes quite consistently. But you, you have these, these guys that, that very ostentatiously have this equality between the sexes. There's this sort of view of everyone has to work the land. It's a very communistic, very socialistic, very politically radical sort of community that ends up in Palestine, which is kind of shocking to a lot of the Arabs, both Christian and Muslim, who already live there. So, and this, this becomes core part of the narrative. So Jamal Husseini, uh, the Secretary of the Arab Higher Committee in 1937 says, as to the communist principles and ideas of the Jewish immigrants, most repugnant to the religions, customs and ethical principles of this country, which are imported and disseminated, I need not dwell upon them as these ideas are well known to have been imported by the Jewish community. It's not really until the 1950s, the 1960s, that our current left-right frame mm. for this situation, right now, it's like obviously left-wing is, you know, pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian, and you know, right-wing is considered sort of pro-Israel. That is a recent development. Oh, and yeah. so throughout most of that stuff, it was actually, if anything, the other way around. From this point on, the violence gets worse and worse in Palestine. So there's one riot on May the 1st, 1921, 95 people killed. 219 seriously injured. There's another in 1929 over respective rights at the Wailing Wall. 136 Arabs and 135 Jews killed. And there's another riot, um, 1936, really, that goes on until 1939, just a wave of riots that go on for years. And that, in the background, is just mm. this growing sense of tension and violence and tit-for-tat reprisal attacks and killings that, that, that sort of start to corrode the utopianism of the project.
0: And something happens to the leadership of Zionism during this period. In America, it's worth noticing that, that it's led by one of the heroes of our freedom of speech episodes, the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, oh. who made Zionism essentially acceptable in America, where there was less of an anti-Semitism and uh, or less avert persecution and a greater fear of of allegations of dual loyalty. And he presented it as you always have to do. You have to present socialism as a form of Americanism. And he presented mm-hmm. Zionism as a form of Americanism. And he sort of clashed with Weizmann because he was sort of more of a pragmatist. Mm. But Weizmann, of course, was seen by others in the movement as too much of a pragmatist. And they kept having to take these compromises. There's a Partitions. There was a the Transjordan partition of 1922, which they didn't mind so much. There was a lot of land, but there were really hardly any Jewish settlers on that land. Then in 1937, the Peel Commission recommends producing a much smaller Jewish state. Uh, Weitzman very reluctantly agrees because the situation for Jews in Europe in 1937 uh, is not great. Not great. Uh, the Arabs reject that completely. Then in 1939, which is after Kristallnacht, so there's really no uh, excuse for not knowing what's happening. There's a British white paper, which uh, imposes strict migration quotas until 1944, then none at all without permission from the Arabs, which just seems, you know, it's a, it's a sort of step too far. Neville Chamberlain says, if we must offend one side, let us offend the Jews rather than the Arabs. Because having the Arabs as military allies on the cusp of war here, is, was more important than saving Jewish lives. The British policy basically becomes triangulation. Triangulation. Exactly. Where are you going to go?
1: You're Jewish, right? What are right. you going to do? Cooperate with Mussolini and Hitler? Or, you know, you guys are banked insofar as you're of any sort of military meaning at all anyway. And the Arabs are not banked and could have a quite significant military meaning.
0: And And David Ben-Gurion who becomes uh, the first prime minister of Israel, a very important um, figure in Zionism. Called this the greatest betrayal perpetrated by the government of a civilized people in our generation, yeah. and this is just after Munich. Yeah, so Chamberlain was doing uh, quite a lot of betraying at this time, and the the White Paper, after you know, 22 years after the Balfour Declaration, essentially finishes White'sman's leadership role because. What has been growing since the 20s, really since the Transjordan partition, is the revisionist wing of Zionism, which is just is like sick of swallowing what they see as these sort of unacceptable compromises.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the guy that is most associated with the revisionism is called uh, Zeg Jabotinsky. It's sometimes called revisionism. It's sometimes called maximalism. He's uh, born in Odessa, 1880. Uh, he's sort of awakened, really, by the pogroms, that 1904 to 1905 pogroms. Ben-Gurion, who was you know, on the, a man of the left, a socialist and a real opponent of his, said this of him. There was in him complete internal spiritual freedom. He had nothing in him of the Gallic Jew and was never embarrassed in the presence of a Gentile. He forms a Jewish legion in World War One.
0: Ben-Gurion also said, because oh. Jabotinsky was born Vladimir Jabotinsky, before he mm-hmm. changed, right. right. uh, mm-hmm. so changed his <laughs> name. Zev means wolf. So he changed his name. Ben-Gurion at one point uh, <laughs> called him Vladimir Hitler. Oof. So... <laughs> You know, you said, yes, he certainly noticed Jabotinsky's sort of lead, strength and leadership qualities, but he did also hate him. Oh, he
1: absolutely hated him. <laughs> yeah. no, but, that, but that's why I think the quote is quite meaningful, yeah, yeah. because it comes from someone, you know, who, who really had no time for him at all. So he forms this Jewish legion in, in World War I, and, and it's sort of from it, he becomes convinced that a Jewish army is a historical necessity. He says, if this is militarism, we ought to be proud of it. By the time that there's um, Arab riots in Jerusalem in the 1920s, he's head of Haganah. Now that is a Jewish paramilitary organisation that eventually becomes the core of the Israeli Defence Force of the IDF. What's interesting about him politically is that all of this stuff that we've been talking about, you know, oh, okay, and, and you know, maybe we shouldn't talk too much about the Arabs, or maybe we'll have these, you know, sort of quite naive ideas as to how everything work out. He he is absolutely, resolutely, plain spoken about how he sees the issue. He's basically like, no, there's going to be a problem here, mm. right? And we need to have a majority, a Jewish majority in Palestine. He also says the thing that I think is depressingly true, which is, even though you might, it's not pleasant to hear him say it, which is that there is no misunderstanding. Weitzman would always talk about the misunderstanding, you know, with mm, the Arab mm-hmm. communities. He's like, no, there is no misunderstanding. They have understood us perfectly. We intend to go over there, establish a majority and create a Jewish state. You know, he's generous. He wants by nationalism. You know, he wants cooperation. Sure. He even says, you know, you could have sort of president, prime minister between Arabs and Jews flicking through. But he's like, there is no misunderstanding. They, un- they know what we want and they do not want it to happen. And incidentally, I think that is the correct analysis. Well, there's, the there's a lot of
0: contradictory up. stuff in, in his writing. Um, about this. Sometimes he just sounds a little more open and liberal, sometimes super hard Yes, that's right. Um, And this essay, The Iron Wall, he puts it like this. The Zionists want only one thing, Jewish immigration, and this Jewish immigration is what the Arabs do not want. Mm. Zionist colonization must either stop or else proceed regardless of the native population. Now, this is not the way that Weitzman or Brandeis wanted to think about that. I mean, colonization is a weird one because colonization meant something different than to colonialism to imperialism the idea was not to have an empire but naturally you're settling somewhere that was called you know you were establishing a colony <laughs> so it's not quite the same but he was far more you know hard line about this and he is uh, I've maybe i'm not sure this has ever happened to anybody else in 1919 thanks to his service in the war he was made an mbe in 1920, he was arrested by the British and given 15 years for possession of illegal firearms. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was a mass pardon, so he didn't serve that yeah, time. Yeah. But I don't know if anyone else has received an MBE one <laughs> year and then been arrested <laughs> the next. Oh, sorry, 1919?
1: 1919,
0: 1919 oh, 1920. Wow, wow. Okay. It's, uh, it, and so he becomes throughout this period, I suppose, the, the thorn in the side of of Weizmann and the pragmatists.
1: Well, it's also that the extremism of particularly those who follow him in this militaristic approach becomes quite harrowing. And in fact, for several individuals, turns into, and I know this sounds insane, admiration for fascism. So what you find is, you know, he founds Betar, which is this revisionist sort of youth movement in Riga in Latvia in 1923, and this sort of focus on knightly chivalry. But Heavy emphasis on paramilitary education, uniforms, processions, discipline, weapons training. We don't even know whether he's read him, but it seems to be like he's harking back to Sorrell. You may remember mm-hmm. Sorrell from our fascism episode of, you know, this idea of like the myth of violence, you know, in history and, and that idea of sort of subrational thought and militarism and potency, virility.
0: Which doesn't mean that he's Because of course sometimes you say fascist, it seems like, oh, aligned with Nazis. No. But, like you said, it's that sort of the, 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 the cult of, of violence and uniforms and um, firearms and so on. Exactly. And, and so, there's some people,
1: so he never uses that word, fascism. But people underneath him do. Abara Chimia, I probably have mispronounced that, uh, start to openly celebrate fascism and call themselves fascists. Okay. And he, but he is a fig, I find him a very interesting figure. Because at that point, he's always distances himself. He's always very clear. He's like, I don't want this type of creed. This is a quote. I don't want this type of creed. Better not to live at all than to live under a system. It's funny. There is this fascistic element to what is happening under him. A Mussolini type fascism rather than a sort mm-hmm. of Hitlerian. But it is not sub-rational. You know, if this all harks back to our episode on fascism. It's not sub-rational. It's essentially that iron wall principle of like, we must, if we're going to survive, if we're going to get what we want, we must defend ourselves. And it is ultimately defending the open society. You know, the, the idea that you militarize the society itself completely, I think is broadly absent in his writings. But nevertheless, for the time being, I think we can put a pin in him, but we have to put a pin in him because what follows, I think, The sort of history you know of israel and and even looking now to lakud is often harking back to what he did there his claim is not just territorial and it's not just about the form i should it be a state or should it be a commonwealth i think it's also about a mentality and the mentality is we will fight to keep israel safe you know what I mean? None of these compromise the, the chat of the world It's like, no, plain speaking language. We'll get the guns. We'll do the training. We'll make sure that Israel is safe at all time. And that maximalist mentality, I think, becomes this really important thread in the years to come.
0: Well, his personal secretary was Ben Zion Netanyahu, <laughs> the father of, of Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> to, to give you an indication of where we're going with like, So, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's another one of those things that it is a very unpopular minority at that point that zionism is largely left-wing mm. you've got people Weinzman doesn't like jabotinsky ben-gurion doesn't like jabotinsky this is a this is a small wing of zionism which kind of really doesn't doesn't achieve any um great influence until some way into the life of the state of israel Okay, It seems a, a good place to leave part one of Zionism. And in part two, we'll be talking about the uh, Second World War, the establishment of the State of Israel, and the evolution of Zionism and the fate of the various traditions represented by these different people.
1: Thank you very much for joining us with this today. Um, the core thing that we always want you to do when we do these things is to go and tell your friends about us, and they can also be your virtual friends. So go on to wherever you get your podcast, write reviews, give us a star rating, go onto social media, and tell people about what we're doing here. Uh, we would uh, very much
0: appreciate that. And you can post feedback on the patreon page or send us tweets the reading list uh for this episode as all episodes will be in the show notes
1: guys we have a live show coming up on the 11th of july at 21 soho you can get tickets online just look for origin story live show and we will see you there it'll be an evening of deep intellectual conversation and me calling
0: dorian a twat at least two or three times And if you would like to help us with the research and putting the podcast together, you can support us uh, every month on Patreon. There's various uh, benefits and goodies and bonus episodes, and we appreciate everybody's support. So we'll see you next time for Zionism Part 2.
1: Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor
0: was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.